Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. Welcome to Retrotube Archive Television Podcast, the only TV nostalgia podcast hosted by an Everton fan and a Formula One fan, apart from all of time and space. Hello, Mark and Ian. Hello. I've waited eight long months and finally it's my turn to take the reins again. We've done Batman, we've done the Avengers and we've done Star Trek. And so the only logical place we can go next is, of course, low budget, low energy, 1980s quiz show, Pop Quiz. Quiz ran on BBC One from 1981 until the end of 1984. Hosted by right-wing radio DJ Mike Reed, the show featured an array of pop luminaries past and present answering questions about their profession. I've picked two episodes of the show from the final series in 1984, and it's not, I repeat not, just an excuse for us to geek out about our favourite 60s musicians. (laughs) 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 And now, for your delight, the darling of Leyland Weatherspoons, Heather Two Cats Wainwright! (laughs) It just ain't true. (laughs) Heather, had you heard of Pop Quiz before? And before we talk about who appears in these episodes, what did you think generally? Well, I had heard of Pop Quiz. In fact, this is a thing you don't know, uh, that I shall now share. When I was maybe about nine or ten, my mum found in a charity shop a board game version of Pop Quiz. Oh, really? She got it for me. Yes, so this will have been around about 1993, 1994, by which point 10-year-old me would not have known (laughs) the answers to very many questions. And unfortunately, (laughs) also, (laughs) there were no instructions. (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) So so I had to make up my own rules, (laughs) which is very frustrating. And uh, suffice to say that the the panel show uh, was nothing like, I presume can't really remember. Uh, <laughs> Although often the board games are very little like the uh, actual I, shows. The... I feel like my version was better. I can't say I disliked it because, you know, there are there are some very specific reasons for me to have not mm. disliked anything that I saw on screen. But <laughs> yeah. I think certainly comparing it to panel shows now, it felt very repressed. Yes. You know, like nobody was allowed to really say anything. And if anybody started to sort of like add a bit of themselves into the proceedings, it was kind of nipped in the bud quite sharply by Mike Reed, who was like, I'm the one with the personality here. When quite clearly, and with no disrespect, although with with a bit of disrespect, really, he doesn't have any. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's an odd thing isn't it i think it's actually yeah. more to do with how quiz shows were in those days than necessarily that particular quiz show and i definitely think 
a modern version of this would be more centred around the personalities of the people involved and they wouldn't just be bringing pop stars on to, to answer questions. And that's literally all they do. Yeah. They're asked a question, they answer the question. Then the next one is asked ask a question and they answer the question. Yeah. And I think now it would be designed much more about their own careers, their own personalities, and I think a lot of the questions would be generated by them, them themselves. Uh, and there'd be a much more of interactive feel to it with each other and it'd be a lot more personality based and oh definitely uh, and it's a thing i think we'll discover as we go through it as someone who's been on tv quiz shows i've been on a couple he has been on a uh, couple and the that, bill and the bill <laughs> i had a line in the bill did you <laughs> I, 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 I had multiple lines in these quiz shows I was on. I was wow. on uh, The Weakest Link and The Chase. You and did I didn't so win well. Either. But no, I did you did right. so well on The Chase. Well, you did great. You got to the end all by yourself. You went head to head against the old Dark Destroyer there. I did. Sean, he was lovely in real life. He seems like he'd be lovely in real life. He gave me great respect backstage. Oh. Well, I mean, he's nice. only human. He is. <laughs> he probably got a little bit starstruck. He was probably like, "Oh, I think I, I think I saw that man in the bill." <laughs> it must have been the doctor. <laughs> it must have been the doctor. And I came third in the weakest link. Anyway, enough bragging. One thing they tell you in these things, they impress upon you, is don't just answer the questions. Talk through your answer. Oh. And so often in this, I mean. We'll probably get to it as we're going as we're going through, but so often in this, Mike Reed asks the question, and they just give the answer, or they just say, "I don't know." There's a lot of that going on. They don't go, "Well, you see, I think it looks like this person," but actually, the more I think about it, and I did have a memory of you know all the kind of thing that you would get even from a civilian uh, quiz show. And civilian quiz <laughs> shows are very <laughs> <laughs> they're very well auditioned, so they don't just have any anyone on them they audition yeah. people that will be good on tv and will be outgoing and will be able to talk and won't look like frightened deer in headlights mm. unlike some people we could name and who will come to <clears throat> it's a shame um i <laughs> having said that about how formal it, it was by the same token modern panel shows kind of for me go a little bit too far the other way like they will the last, particularly the comedy-based ones. I don't want to name any names because I don't want to. I don't want people to shout at me. But you know, they do sort <laughs> of like start off asking a question, and then three days later, after everybody's been really clever at each other and really smug, then somebody will actually give an answer, and I'm sat there like, "What? Why are you saying that? What? What was that? Oh yeah, they asked. Yeah, that was five minutes ago. So the kind of." I, I wouldn't mind. There's a happy medium. Some kind of a happy medium, yeah. As Actually, as I was watching it, you probably have... I mean, I'm, I'm making wild assumptions about you here, but I presume that A Question of Sport is not a show that you have grown up watching. Oh, no, it is. But mainly because my dad watched it. Ah, well, yes. Quezzy was like... A, it has it, been quite a staple in our in our family. And it kind of felt a little bit like a musical version of Quezzy. Oh, very much so. One, one round in particular. Yes, except for the fact that, like, even back in the days when David Coleman was presenting it and Bill Bowman and Emmeline Hughes were the team captains, guess who we stuck up for every week? Oh, Emmeline. No. Oh. 
Well, isn't he a scouser? No, he's Welsh, and he played for the Dirty Red Noses. he Welsh? Noses. I always thought he was a scouser. No, he played for Liverpool. Oh, football. So, <laughs> obviously, we, we all stuck up for Bill. Right, OK. Can't believe, can't believe I, you. Can't believe you. I don't know. He played for Liverpool. Why do we stick up for him? I don't know. Yeah, a question of sport was much more banterific. In a, ba- banter in a good way, not the more. Yeah, not not banter, the word banter, just just like the on telly. jovial. Jovial, Convivial. yeah. I remember Emlyn was particularly good. He had the sort of cheeky, silly sense of humour thing, and, and Bill was very stoic, northern grumpy. For years, I thought Emlyn was a jockey, and I don't know why. Maybe it was the hair. I think it's the hair. Yeah. Anyway, hair. sorry, do go on. Yeah. Anyway, I think the combination of them was good, especially when they made each other laugh. I think the difference between Question of Sport and this is that this has revolving captains, so the whole captain thing is fairly arbitrary. It's yeah. just whichever pop star is sitting in the centre seat. So Question of Sport has had time to build up a rapport between these three, and there is humour based upon their ongoing personalities and their ongoing relationships between each other, whereas this is just Mike Reed and six other people, two of whom happen to be sitting in the centre seat, one of whom doesn't want to be there, at all. wants to be at home having a pint. <laughs> he doesn't even know how he managed to get there. It's like... <laughs> he just woke up there. <laughs> it's like, they told me to turn left. Why am I here? He turned up there with a couple of hookers, all white stuff on his moustache, no memory of the night before. Absolutely none. And he just sat there and... The, and um, this strange little man starts asking him a lot of questions and he answers them all. He answers them all perfectly, though. To be fair, his his pop music knowledge was immense. But he was just like, why are you asking me that? <laughs> we, shall, we shall reveal shortly who we're talking about. I think everybody knows. <laughs> at this point. Well, I don't know. Shall we, shall we um, reveal shall we? who was on, on show one? Let's. So on one team, we have, from the Monkees, Mr. Davy Jones. Yay! From the Undertones, Fergal Sharkey. And in the captain's chair, looking bemused and unhappy, <laughs> from the Who, Mr. John Entwistle. Yay! <laughs> and of course, we get the signature Davy Jones gag. We do. First of all, let's meet John's team, and here he comes. From the Monkees, will you please stand up, Davy Jones. <laughs> Oh, you are standing up. Sorry. I am standing up. That, honestly, it's like, if Davy Jones doesn't do the I am standing up joke, it's the same as if Mickey Dolan doesn't do the Leonard Nimoy really became a Vulcan joke. <laughs> It really is. But he sells the joke. Like, he does it as if he's never had to do the joke before. He, he, he looks genuinely affronted. Stoically. Yeah, it made me laugh. It made me laugh. I, I knew it. I knew it was coming. I, I felt it. I saw it. It was how ha- I saw the way his eyes went. I, I knew. I knew what was happening. Yeah, there's a big gap for the audience applause. I am standing up. I love him. <laughs> I love him so much. And on the other team, Cheryl Baker off of Bucks, Fears and Telly. I think I don't know if she was on Telly at this time. Uh, Tony Butler from Big Country, who's who's actually the only one I wasn't previously familiar with, but he's got quite a CV. He's uh, almost as much of a member of the Who as Entwistle is. He's played with Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey and uh, Dave D. 
Geezer extraordinaire Dave D from Dave D Dozy Beaky McIntitch. Yes. Do you know what? I actually, until until I watched this episode, <laughs> and, I, and obviously I'm speaking as a person who has grown up loving 60s music, I genuinely, <laughs> I thought that David D were two separate people. <laughs> <laughs> I thought like all of their names were like had commas in between like Dave, D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch. I, I and think then, that's logical. This, this guy just sat in the middle and he was like, this is Dave D. And I was like, well, where's the other one? <laughs> Dave D is not the person you'd imagine who sings those songs. He's the lead singer of Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch. And he, he's can best be described as louche. He dresses like it's 1974. His shirt is open nearly to the navel. He's like he's being played by Robin Asquith in Confessions of a Pop Singer. <laughs> there is something very Robin Asquith about him. There really is. Really is. Do you know, I was, th- I was thinking he reminds me of somebody all the way through, and it wasn't until you've just said it now, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly who he is. Titch out of Do- Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch. At least I think it's it's either Mick or Titch. They had several Micks and several Titches. Well, because Dad ended up calling him Mitch, so <laughs> so it was one of the two. Um, he ended up owning uh, a nursing home in Salisbury, where my auntie Doris ended up living for the last few years. He was very, very sweet to her and took very, very good care of her. So that's nice of him. We love Mick and we love Titch, whichever one it was. Yeah, which, whichever one of the them. multiple Micks and Titches. We love Mitch. So we've got th- three 60s legends, well, two 60s legends and Dave D on the same <laughs> show. Yes, we no, do. No, bless him. He's, he's a 60s legend, just not, not quite to the same scale. This was wonderful for me because The Who and The Monkeys are my two favourite bands ever. And they're sitting next to each other. They're sitting next to each other. And the thing that was really nice about it is that it was... Potentially, at that time, it was possibly the two that you wouldn't expect because Roger Daltrey, you can probably always count, he will probably always turn up on anything. I have a feeling that Pete wouldn't have been on Pop Quiz at all because like, he would have had to shut up and he wouldn't have liked that. But actually getting John to appear on something was quite was quite a thing. I, I remember him being on an episode of Nevermind the Buzzcocks in about... I remember that as well. In about 2000, and he was just... He was equally baffled... <laughs> He had a similar level of enthusiasm. And never mind the buzzcocks. <laughs> Absolutely not. He answers most of the questions with his hand across his mouth. Yes. Or somewhere on his face. He works well as, like, the straight man, which I think is why him and Davey made a really, really good team, even though you didn't get to see it too well. I loved the combination of the two of them. Because I would have expected Mickey from The Monkees to have been more likely, because at the time, he in the early 80s, he was living in... England and he in Newark was he doing Metal Mickey at the time probably yeah and also despite the fact that Davey was very clearly not what anybody would by any stretch of any imagination call sober he he really did his best (laughs) I just thought he was enthusiastic he was very he was in an advanced state of refreshment as Mark Kermode would say Davey and John Entwistle 
the monkeys and the hoot generally just seem to exist on different planes of reality to the extent that you kind of feel that John Entwistle and Davy Jones would be unable to acknowledge each other's presence. And in fact, they generally don't acknowledge each other's presence. There's only, I think, two interactions that, that, that you actually see where, <laughs> where they recognise that the other is sitting next to them. The best one being right at the very end when... Um, <laughs> John passes Davy a note which causes Davy's eyebrows to travel up his forehead. I used to watch Pop Quiz. I used to enjoy Pop Quiz, but I think I mainly watched it to see if there would be any Beatles clips on it that week, which there were occasionally. Because, of course, pre-internet, pre-VHS, I mean, this wasn't pre-VHS, but this pre-V- it was for pre-the you. Leslie's having VHS. Yes, not until 1991, I, I, folks. Yeah, you know, Christmas 1990. <laughs> we're certainly not early adopt- adopters, unless we're early adopters of VHS making some kind of comeback. <laughs> so so occasionally there would be Beatles clips. The one I really vividly remember, because at the end of every show they have a little play-out clip of some either random or related act. Uh, and the one I really remember was when they played um, Space Oddity. So it's, it's that very cheap-looking music video version they did with, I think it would have been the demo version where the first part is sung by John Hutchinson the guitarist ground control to Major Tom ground control to Major Tom on the finished record it's David Bowie double tracking but on that demo version it's John Hutchinson and David Bowie singing together and I just remember that I'd never heard that song before and I spent the rest of the evening walking around the house singing it and I remember my parents commenting how much I was taken with um, Space Oddity I think it's interesting and telling that uh, Mike Reed once sang an anti-immigration calypso song in a cod Jamaican accent at a UKIP conference, oh God. and he's still by far one of the less problematic Radio One DJs of that era. Leaders committed a cardinal sin. Open the borders, let them all come in. Illegal immigrants in every town. Stand up and be counted, Blair and Brown. He says something a little bit later on in this episode to Tony Butler, and I was like, "Are you allowed to say that on television? You're allowed to say that oh, yeah, at all?" What, what, what is it he says? Um. It's sort of towards the end when uh, there's a clip of Joe Cocker. That's right. Mike Reed says, "Can you, for a bonus point, can you do an impression? Tony, I'll give you a bonus point if you can do a quick impersonation of Joe Cocker. That was Little Richard doing Joe Cocker. Right. Mike Reed then described it as Little Richard doing Joe Cocker. I don't think that's the comparison. Yes, you that was a little to... bit uncomfortable. Davy's impression was. <laughs> it was entertaining. It was unbridled. Anybody want a quick point over here for your side? You do need the point. Anybody a quick impersonation of uh, Joe Cocker for the point? I'm going to make a ticket for an airplane. Care fast train. I think a bonus point for Davy Jones for that over the top impersonation of Joe Cocker. I also liked Davy's questions about Billy Billy Joel, uh, who they showed the video of him singing Allentown. And. Which is one of my favourite Billy Joel songs. 
it, it's a good one. The question was, can you tell me which album it came from? Davey panics. <laughs> Davey's eyebrows fall off his face. <laughs> he goes, that's the name of the album. <laughs> yep, that, <laughs> that's right. And, and then he's like, uh, well, I, I know it's a, it's a very good album. And I'm sat there like, you don't know who this is, do you? And he's like, yep, no, I didn't. <laughs> well, actually, I didn't recognise him without the piano. Uh, yes, quite. Uh, did What's the name of the album? I left my piano in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> A solid guess. A solid guess. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then the second question. Can you tell me his first top 20 hit? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he absolutely couldn't. But then he just did. Yeah. It, it's, it's like... It's like the knowledge is definitely in there. I think Davey would have been in the country possibly doing Puzzle Trail around that time, which was a kids' TV show on BBC about... It's what it is what it says. It's about treasure maps and it's a studio show. Oh. I, I haven't seen it since it was on, so I only have vague memories of, of this treasure map and they're having to find a treasure and Davy Jones being in it and there being different characters and he possibly either he played different characters or he was the main character and other people were playing different characters but that's a thing he did I'm looking for a, 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 a piece of treasure or a precious object that's hidden somewhere on your island oh I know that dear boy haven't you found it yet no of course you haven't I suppose you haven't had enough clues from all the inhabitants well I'll tell you one thing the place you are looking for is not directly behind you. Do you know which way you are facing? Oh, of course. Uh, your dear departed husband, the late Duke, fell into the creek. That side. Well done, my boy. Would you like to come up to the mansion for a cup of coffee? Oh, no, thank you. I'm going to go off to the schoolhouse next to see the school teacher. Mm, Stan. Oh, is she? Oh, I don't like strict teachers. No, no, no. She's a very kind and jolly lady. Lovely. Oh, I thought you said she was Stern. That's her name, Miss Stern. And so a few of the people we see in this, in the two episodes here, ended up having programmes on children's BBC. Because, of course, Cheryl Baker, who I think probably is the most comfortable on television out of these six. To be fair, she didn't need to be that comfortable in front of a, in front of a television camera to be the most comfortable person in front of a television camera. <laughs> no. Yeah, Fergal Sharkey in particular, he looks very nervous. He reminded me a little bit of, you know, the really enthusiastic boy in class who wants to answer every single question, even if he doesn't actually know the answer. Even if a minimum of 50% of the time yes. he's completely wrong. He just always, <laughs> he, just, he just wants to have a go, damn it. Yeah, he was kind of like perched kind of way more on, it was like John and Davey were like, sitting in their normals in the designated space and Virgil was kind of like hugging the end of the table like he was about to fall off it well like he can just escape if it just becomes too much for his poor rattled nerves yeah it's an interesting collection of people it's a shame that the show itself is just so dry and didn't really take advantage of having these legends I know just like ask them something ask them ask them something interesting Ask them about, like, their, you know, if, if it's, like, a particular band or a song from, like, when they had something in the charts, just be like, you know, did you 
did you get to work with these people? You know, mm. give us some kind of an anecdote. But no. No, just answer the question. <laughs> Stop trying to be entertaining. We're here to get through questions. Ugh. So often there'd be like a 45 second, one minute long clip of a band and then Mike Reed would ask a question and then the person on the receiving end of the question would go, I don't know. <laughs> and that would be it. It's like, oh, yeah. we've watched all of that. I don't know. Yeah, and he didn't like give them time to sort of say, well, hmm, hang on a minute, let me let me have a little debate with myself here. No, and he doesn't throw the question over to the other team. He doesn't give any clues. No, it's just none like of that. It's just like that's well, just, that's the end of that question. Oh, we no, don't you know. didn't know it. Oh. No. <laughs> Oh, the round three, which is the lyric round. Two rounds coming up on your screens of a famous lyric. Also, I'll tend to read them appallingly to you. Cheryl, your first to go, and yours is Neon on my naked skin, passing silhouettes of strange illuminated mannequin. I can never write stuff like that. I can't think. It's in the charts, and it's this one. Alphaville and Big in Japan. Always tough, the sort of current ones. Uh, Davey, can you tell me which song these lyrics are taken from? See her gentle sway, a wave out on the ocean could never move that way. I can't think. I like the lyrics, but... Uh, well, we'll just be I'll watching you... Nine. We'll be watching you grimacing on the screen as you listen to this. See her gentle sway, a wave out on the ocean Never move that way. Tick, Johnny Tillotson. And Poetry in Motion. My favourite, the first record I ever bought. Really? Yeah. I think the other difference between this and modern quiz shows is that now they would make the questions fun to answer. Yeah. For people at home as well. So something like Only Connect, which is a quiz show, but the actual format of the questions, finding the connection between the different things, and even something that's fairly dry, like University Challenge, you can yeah. play along with quite nicely at home. But this is so dry. You know, it's often questions like, how many albums did such and such band release? Five. No, six. Next question. It's like, well, that's that's not fun to answer. It always reminded me of a singing Bob Harris. Can you tell me the lead singer of the group? Roger Chapman. Roger Chapman is right. Can you name one of the groups you left family to go and form? Anyone will do. Streetwalkers. Streetwalkers, yeah. Chapman, Whitney, Streetwalkers, shortlist. Or just Roger Chapman as Roger Chapman. So you have two points. Well done. It's bordering on the pub quiz. They might as well just have a pad and a pen and paper and just write the answers down for all the for all the like showbiz entertainment we're getting. Here. Particularly round two, ten songs on the theme of water. So they play some old film from the twenties and thirties. Yeah, I don't get this round at all. No, so they play ten songs on the theme of water, but the fact that they are on the theme of water is totally irrelevant because they only have to name the bands. And I think the sensible, the logical thing would have been to do, for them to have done, would have been to have actually had them also try and guess what the theme was of the song, rather than just saying, these are ten th- songs randomly on the theme of water, name the bands. Yeah, and I don't understand the concept of the film clips either, because because obviously all of the little film clips that they show are to do with theme. But they've already said what the theme is. So why not just, like, show little clips of 
the performances of the song. Yes, I mean, I suppose they don't want to give away the who the, the artist is by showing them. But yeah, it just seems logical to, like, to also ask, so what, what was the connection between those ten songs? But for a piece of television, it involves writing down ten names in a list on a piece of paper. It, it is literally a pub quiz round, isn't it, really? Yeah. And then they have to read out the ten they've, you know, the ones they've got. And then the other team have to read out the ones they've got. And it's very dry. Oliver Hardy looking so he's done ten rounds with meatloaf. Uh, right, John Entwistle, how did your team get on? About nine. You think about nine? Yeah. You got nine? John is not quite as confident as <laughs> you are. Dave, how many do you think you have? <laughs> Uh, they think no, they have somewhere between six and nine. We've got, I think we've got seven definites and one dodgy one. Seven definites and <laughs> a dodgy one. Do you want to try with your six or possible nine first? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kim Wilde. I'll tell you afterwards. Echo and the Bunnyman. Ike and Tina Turner. Simon and Garfunkel. Bruce Springsteen. Talking All right, I'll tell you how many you've got in a moment, Dave. Um, you want me to read them out to you? Mm-hmm. Right, Kim Wilde. The Bunnyman. Tina Turner, Simon and Garfunkel, Bruce Springsteen, CCS, Tap Turns on the Water, I think that was. Uh, question mark. <laughs> that doesn't qualify. It might, it might have been Dylan or someone. Yellow, yellow. Have you got Dylan? Was it? I yeah, I put that down because it sounded no, like it so. could have been him. You know, when no, Yellow River. We can't remember the name of the band. Dawn. No, it wasn't Dawn. Australian band. Yeah. I can tell you that. Do I get a point for telling you that the Tremblers actually played on that record? Yeah, I did know that actually. Yes. Do I get yeah. a point for that? They, they produced no. it. And I still can't remember the name of the band. <laughs> and Deep Purple. And Deep Purple. I feel John has a very low embarrassment threshold. Yeah, he was born embarrassed. He was born embarrassed, but he he learned over time to mask that as just complete indifference. <laughs> And songs about spiders. Songs about spiders and his wife. Clones. I think that's probably part of the reason in The Who he was the one who just stood there. I, I don't know what to do. Um, yeah, the, the, the other three are thrashing about all over the place and he's like, oh no. <laughs> oh no, they're looking at me. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not quite his accent, but I'll let you off. <laughs> it is. They all talk the same. <laughs> All Southerners, the same accent. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> Maybe we have two accents. The other one is, I say mummy. <laughs> mummy, daddy. Yeah, that's right. He really did seem quite embarrassed by just existing, frankly. Poor old John. I was going to say, I was going to say John Edwistle's never done a thing wrong in his life. But... <laughs> He's done many things. <laughs> <laughs> John John Entwistle did an awful lot of things wrong in his life, but do you know what? He had a great time, so it doesn't count. He had a lovely time. You wouldn't time. be able to tell, but he did. So this is something that's strange. There's there's one of the Who in the studio, and, and probably more to the point, there is one of the monkeys in the studio. But for some reason, mm-hmm. it's Dave D who seems to have the fans in the audience. Every time he does anything, there's just lots of screaming from the audience. I know. In fact, I made a note of this. The Dave D fan club is in. I didn't even know he had one. No. So why is Davey not getting the screams? It's Davey Jones. It's Davey freaking Jones. I mean, he is standing up. <laughs> OK, Dave, for one point, can you name the guitarist and the bass player with Culture Club? Roy Hay guitar. Mm-hmm. And Mickey Craig bass. Mikey Craig, yes, and bass. Yeah, I don't even like did he pay people? Maybe it's Dozy Beaky Mick and Teacher screaming. <laughs> all no, all of the bitches. 
all the teachers and all the mix, all of the bitches. Those 70s clips, they weren't that old, but they just seemed so alien in the 80s. Any of those old 70s rock clips where it wasn't all spangly and shiny and 80s looking. I mean, this is the most 80s looking thing possible. The silver set with the diamond pattern on it and everything's very shiny and glittery and thing. And then you get these old clips of some very hairy man in a sweaty t-shirt growling and snarling and electric guitars that haven't gone through filters they're just raw horrible electric guitars just amped and sounding nasty and gritty and that sounds great now but back in the 80s that seems so alien it seemed prehistoric yeah there's just like no no polish yeah and even more so when you saw clips from the 60s and the, you know the black and white murky clips of the beatles or the mm. kinks in the early it's days black or something and white clearly from a hundred years ago. <laughs> yes, it's like you're seeing them through like some kind of time visualiser. Even though like then the people who were in said clips are then in the studio yes. still very much alive and only looking slightly older. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's not quite the same now. I think time has kind of compressed up so that it's all just pop music history. So if you see a clip of the Beatles in black and white or you see a clip of Culture Club or you see a clip of sweaty, hairy Joe Cocker, then it all just seems like old music. Yeah, I think... It may be due to the availability of it now, the accessibility. Everything's on YouTube, everything's on internet somewhere. But back then it was like, well, you only see the modern things because they're what we've got. Um, The old stuff is like mostly taped over. I sort of think we don't have monolithic culture in the same way. I think possibly the 80s and 90s were... I think they they that finished with the 20th century, that Mm. the 80s was... 80s like it was eight it was really the 80s was really 80s like you're in the 80s and you, you're in the 80s it's it's the 80s i mean you will you be. will yeah yes. i mean it wasn't we weren't all going around i certainly wasn't going around looking like a fa- an 80s fashion icon but i was certainly in terms of the music you'd that would be in the charts and i had some really really cute bunny slippers <laughs> in about 1986 i bet you and did. a really really cute pair of corduroy dungarees <laughs> I was adorable, folks. (laughs) I had an orange ball cap. I still am. Well, you still are. Sorry, I should have said that, shouldn't I? You still are. But yeah, certainly watching TV or going to the shops or anything, you know, adverts on TV, it's like everything's soaked in 80s-ness. So anything from outside of the 80s, from before the 80s, Mm. would seem very alien. And I remember at the time being utterly offended, almost to the point of physical revulsion, by flared trousers. If ever there was like a clip from the 70s and someone was in flared trousers, it used to cause me <laughs> used to cause me pain, actual pain and nausea to see people in flared trousers. No, I like a pair of flared trousers. I like a I, I like a 70s trousers. fashion thing, but they just it, it seems Who doesn't like a bell bottom. Yeah. But the 70s seemed so alien, just impossible. Like how did real people dress like this? Why do they not, why did they not dress like we do in the 80s now when we dress sensibly like modern people (laughs) (laughs) and of course i don't think there is that monolithic culture now i think it like you say everything is so available and everyone's interested in all different parts of culture there is fashion yeah but it's not so distinctive and it's not so overpowering and omnipresent and omniscient and it doesn't infuse everything to the same extent that it would have in the eight the the 60s and 70s and 80s i think particularly in the 70s when you start to see quite straight laced tv presenters who in the 50s and 60s wouldn't have the trappings of youth culture or 
fashion generally by the 70s michael parkinson had big sideburns and shaggy hair and all these straight laced tv presenters had shaggy hair and big sideburns so it was it would just be everywhere it would just seep into everything potentially the reason that fashion and etc hasn't changed too much in the last few years is because of certain trends particularly on social media posting sites such as TikTok, but I guess even before that there was like Vine and, and things like that, um, where people would do dances to bits of songs from whenever. And it wouldn't really matter, like there, there would be no context of the song. Yes. It would just be the song. And so there would be all kinds of people who don't know what that song is or where it's from or when it's from, mm. just all loving said piece of music. Whereas back in... Certainly, certainly the, the 20th century. The the music dictated your fashion. Yes. And often your personality as well. Yes, very much. When, when I was like massively into, into the modernist movement, I dressed pretty much every day as though I had just stepped out of 1964 Carnaby Street. Nice. I kind of rocked it. I won't mm, lie. Yeah. Um, like everybody, like you could look at me and say, this girl pretty much will only listen to The Who and 60s beat music and, and all of them. You know, obviously, like, back in back in the 60s, there was the mods and the rockers, and, like, the rockers would all dress in leather and look weird and smell funny. And, <laughs> and then you had the hippies who would smell even funnier and wear even weirder clothes. And then, like, the punk scene and the, and the, the scene scene. How you dressed and how you acted and, and your gang of friends was largely dictated by the music that you listened to. But what with everybody now listening to pretty much all the same kinds of music, because there is so much available and then there are so many different songs that are just sort of presented without context. That's why nothing really looks different or has looked different. Like you can watch a film from like 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And if you thought it was a modern film, you could easily be you could easily forgive them. It is a modern like, film. Fashions and things haven't haven't changed that much. Yeah. It's, it's modern to us. But you know what I mean? Something from something from like 10, 15 years ago. If we were like in the 80s now, a film from 15 years ago was like 1965. It looks completely different, but things don't look different now. Everything looks kind of the same because everybody has access to the same thing. And certainly fashions over the last 15 potentially 20 years have been a little bit on the beige side there haven't been any massive musical revolutions in the you know there's not been the sort of 90s Britpop thing or the 90s yeah i think possibly that the last thing was the spice girls yeah it's not like it's been any big newness it's just been more of the same presented slightly differently which honestly i don't mind i quite like because i work in a record shop and i quite like the fact that it's actually mostly young women and not middle-aged men who are browsing the vinyl records you get all these kids in their mm. 20s come in and they get really excited because they found a vinyl copy of hotel california or oh yeah any of those things or one of our biggest selling records is um king crimson the first album like people love that, and yeah, the other kids coming, like, oh, it's King Crimson. I grew up as a '60s music fan in the '90s. I I went to college in the '90s. I was at secondary school in the early '90s. It was just what you listen to that old music for. Why don't you listen to new music? New music's better because it's new. What you listen to that for? But now you could go to a party, put on some '80s music, maybe not '60s music, but you could certainly put on '80s music, and people wouldn't bat an eyelid. They go, oh, this is great. I love this. They wouldn't go, this is 40 years old, this is 35 years old, what are you putting this on for? 
what about some new music? It's partly to do with the clarity of recording. It doesn't sound ancient. If you put on Girls Just Want to Have Fun at a party, everyone goes, hey, I love this song. It doesn't sound like some ancient record from 40 years ago. No, it doesn't. And I quite like that. Yeah, no, it's not It's not a criticism. It's just a, an observation. I quite like the fact that there's like a little more, like you say, a little bit more accepted to be, to, to have a leaning in a, in a certain direction musically because I, I do feel like like I'm, I'm I'm saying like music and fashion as though they're inextricably linked and I kind of I feel that they are I think so or they were certainly in the 20th century the late second half of the 20th century definitely even now even as a 920 year old woman <laughs> I could I could get myself all rigged up in in very very 60s stuff and leave the house and nobody would bat an eyelid nobody would turn her they'd just be like they wouldn't even notice me but like back in the late 90s early 2000s when I was dressing like that as as a girl in my mid-late teens it was weird yes and I would get looks and I would get comments as a person who doesn't like anybody to know that I exist (laughs) (laughs) as a secret John Entwistle yes (laughs) (laughs) oh my god they're looking at me um it was weird, but like that was the way that I liked to dress because that was like how how I felt nice. That's me with my floral shirts. You with your floral shirts are absolutely. I don't like anyone looking at me, but I wear really floral shirts. They are beautiful. Nobody rocks a floral shirt like you do. Round six. Oh yes, <laughs> we're talking about telly. Forgot. Straight from Question Sport, this is where they have to identify a celebrity who's doing a thing and it's filmed in exactly the same way that they would do it every week on Question of Sport. So this is probably the most fun round. And at the same time, there's a backwards song they have to identify. So this is, this is like, this is more, this is what it should be like. This, this is, is more, more like it. it. Although I have to say, even if like his entire body had been in full view and he was wearing a neon sign saying, hello guys, my name is Captain Sensible, I still wouldn't have had a flipping clue who the chuff he was. Without the beret and the dark glasses, he's unrecognisable. I thought it was Alan Hull from Lindisfarne. Wouldn't have that been something? That would have been something, yeah. But no, it was Captain Sensible, like, absolutely unrecognisable. He's just, he's got a red beret and dark glasses, and that's how you know it's Captain Sensible. I wouldn't even know that. Did you ever watch Big Break? Yes. It's only a game, so put up a real good fight. That's Captain Sensible who sings that. Oh, well, there you go. I do know who he is. I'm going to be snookering you tonight. Rudest line ever. John's team at this point has gone into the lead. And John Entwistle looks now more excited and happy than I have ever seen him ever look ever in my whole life. Which isn't saying much. No, he he actually smiles. Unforced. I am not going to lie to you. If, if if I was in Cheryl Baker's position, Davy Jones in the same room as me, I would be giggling helplessly every time he opened his mouth. There would just be full, unashamed swooning. <laughs> it's Davy Jones. Davy Jones. Lovely yeah. man. Lovely yeah, man. Davy. Foxy. Davy. He has a very strong grip for a short guy. Have you met him? Yes, I have. He was lovely. He was adorable. He was just... He was just an utter sweetheart. He does look like he would have a strong grip. Such a strong grip. Definitely if, like, a hurricane had burst through the MEN arena at that point... You'd have been all right. I would have been fine. I would have been held by Davy Jones and I would not have been let go. There would have been no problem It'd be like one of those cartoons where he shakes your hand and you go up and down. (laughs) Yeah, I did. Um, And, yes... uh, 
sorry, I was just lost in a thought. Um, <laughs> I don't remember. Um, no, he's a very, very nice man. He was very sweet, um, uh, very giggly and convivial because it was after the Monkees show at the Emian Arena in 2002, I think. And he said, just before he sang a song called It's Nice to Be With You, he said, please don't sing along because I get all embarrassed. <laughs> so because I was sat on like the fourth row, I covered my mouth with my hands so he didn't see me singing along. <laughs> and I told him this. I said, when you told me when you told me not to sing along, I had to sing behind my hands because I didn't want to put you off. And he burst out laughing. He was like, oh, I was only joking, love. <laughs> I, I, I was like, oh, my God, David Jones called me love. And then uh, somebody took a photo of us. Um, I I, 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 I'm saying somebody, I can't remember who had the camera because I was being cuddled by David Jones. So nobody else actually was there. And because, like, it was indoors at night time, there wasn't a camera flash and he was like do it again do it again do it again doesn't count if you don't have a flash and I was like oh my god Davy Jones just said that out loud and I actually said that out loud <laughs> and then and then he just like died laughing um uh yeah so yeah I embarrassed myself in front of a monkey <laughs> I think that sounded very entertaining <laughs> it I'm sure I'm sure it was to somebody I didn't sleep for about three nights after that because I was oh, too I busy bet. going oh Oh my god, I met Davey. So the episode ends with a really grungy uh, live clip of Vinegar Joe. Yeah. Which uh, which I think might be the best bit of the whole show. It quite quite probably, quite probably. In, in entertainment terms, we have this really dry question and answer. This awkward question and answer show. Then at the very end, it, it's a clip of Robert Palmer and Elkie Brooks giving it loudly. Yes. They're giving it everything they've got. They- and it's quite interesting because, of course, I think most of us are used to seeing Robert Palmer as a vacuum cleaner salesman surrounded by robot ladies. But in Vinegar Joe, he's got long blonde hair and he's the he's a he's a proper rocker. It's quite disconcerting when you used to see him dressed as a, a manager in his suit and his short back and sides. And there he is with his his long flowing hair. So I really like that clip. It's proper good performance, and I had no idea they they were in any way connected. Elkie Brooks, who sang the theme tune to a very peculiar practice, and Robert Palmer, who had a band of robot ladies. And that that was after John had passed his little love letter to Dave. Yes. <laughs> Which, I would yes. love to know what was on that note. I would give anything to know what, what was on that note. I think it's a really filthy suggestion. I would be disappointed if it wasn't a really filthy suggestion, to be honest. When you have such a, a format that provides no room to breathe and no room for just general chit-chat to happen between people, or there's no way of including other people, just people just get, end up getting very much left out. In episode two, the second episode we watch, you have actually six quite big characters, big personalities, mm. a couple of whom are almost invisible just because of the format. And certainly certainly one of them I wouldn't have expected to be remotely invisible, but barely got two words out of him. Is this somebody who is a secret scouser, even though He's actually not then... secretly scouser. Uh, he's a secret scouser in this because he doesn't say anything. <laughs> He doesn't say anything. He, he just he just scowls in a scousy way. <laughs> Before we get on to episode two and we go into uh, exactly 
who is on episode two. I just wanted to mention Nevermind the Buzzcocks, which is con- conspicuously the only other pop music quiz show that the BBC did, as far as I know. Because I, I've become quite fascinated recently. Those few years, I think in the late 90s going through to the 2000s, when comedy on TV, comedy panel shows could be really, really unpleasant and get away with it. And I, I'm glad we've actually moved away from that. Because I think, never mind the Buzzcocks, I used to watch it all the time and I enjoyed it, but a lot of it made me feel really uncomfortable. And I was thinking about this when I was, I was watching this show and thinking about Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Something like Would I Lie to You, Rob Brydon and Lee Mack are very good at poking fun at the other contestants, the other players, without hurting their feelings, because they know how to do that and still make the guests feel comfortable. But actually, when I was thinking about it, what they did on Nevermind the Buzzcocks a lot of the time was to prey on people's insecurities. Yes. And so a lot of the banter, particularly Mark Lamar, his jibes would genuinely make me watching it uncomfortable. The the memorable one for me was when Sophie Ellis-Bexter was on it. And so they decided that it would be hilarious banter if all her questions were just about children's songs because her mother was on Blue Peter. And I think her insecurity there would be the fact that she wants to be taken seriously as a pop singer and not just be thought of as Janet Ellis's daughter. She wants to have a career in her own right. And she looked really, really cheesed off. Mark Lamar in particular was like, made reference to like saucer of milk for Ellis Baxter and that sort of thing. And they didn't rein it back when they realised that she wasn't enjoying it. They didn't change tack. They just ploughed on with this. The final round where they have to complete the lyric, it was all just children's songs. Everyone else was getting pop songs and rock songs. She was just getting children. It's like, row, row, row your boat. Bar, bar, black sheep. And it wasn't funny and it was never funny. And it was just watching someone being really uncomfortable. And also when they'd have really young, upcoming pop musicians on it, the gag was always about how they weren't going to have a career and they'd be gone tomorrow. Again, it's preying on their insecurities because, of course, if you're a new pop star or a new rock star or, or, you know, you're not even a star, you're just coming up in the music industry, your main insecurity is going to be, are you going to have any kind of career? Are people going to forget about you tomorrow? And so that was what a lot of the humour was based on. And I think they thought they were very smart, but it, it... I mean, a lot of it was funny and I did watch it. I used to watch all... I I watched the panel shows religiously. I used to stop what I was doing, down tools, and I had to go and watch all of them. And actually, the only one I watch at all now of the comedy panel shows is uh, Would I Lie to You? Because it is... It's very funny and it's warm. It's warm. That was my dad's favourite. Dad loved it. You used to call it Wilty. Uh, yeah, you have to call it Wilty. Right, let's get to... um, we did two episodes. Episode two. Luckily, we did two episodes. 16 days. (laughs) Yes. So, the uh, panellists on this show are Steve Marriott from The Small Faces and Humble Pie. Yay! Very nearly secret scouser Holly Johnson from Frankie Goes to Hollywood because he says about two words. Bob Geldof. This is 1984, so this is pre-Live Aid. So he's Bob Geldof from Boomtown Rats at this point. P.P. Arnold. Tom Robinson from the Tom Robinson Band and Paul Jones from Manfred Mann. So another three 60s legends. They're spoiling us. They really are. I did have to Google Tom Robinson's entire discography and I still don't know who he is. Two, four, six, eight, motorway. And Ray Davis once wrote a song about him called Prince of the Punks, which is not a complimentary song. No, it doesn't sound like it would be. Yeah, Tom Robinson, he was kind of in a new wave punkish band, but now he's a six music 
uh, DJ. Paul Jones, also Six Music DJ, and he presented Beat the Teacher on children's TV, so he is also a children's TV presenter. But now here's Paul Jones with Beat the Teacher. <laughs> The last one before we do what happens next week, which is our championship playoff. Three best pupils, three best teachers. And what happens in the last one before that? Well, Mrs. Hastings is defending £210 worth of equipment for the school library. He's quite comfortable on TV. So this felt like a much more relaxed episode. It didn't quite. It didn't really have the level of nervousness of the first one. Well, that's because John wasn't there just wondering what was going no. on. I think only Holly Johnson is the one who seems properly nervous. I mean, to be fair, though, he is sat on panel with Bob Geldof and Steve Marriott. So that would make anybody nervous. What's going to happen next is going to be like his only thought. There are three great accents on that panel, though. My first note was, TF is going on with Steve's hair. (laughs) It's quite remarkable. Three question marks. Yes. TF! Three uh, three more question marks. (laughs) I don't care that it's 1984. There's no excuse for that hair, Stephen Peter Marriott. So we should describe for the listener this being a non-visual medium. I feel like we we can't. I feel like it would be cruel. Steve Marriott in the 60s was known for being very stylish, but in the 80s was mainly known for wearing dungarees and having a mullet. So he really, he went from being mod icon. Mod icon. With just amazing hair. He had great hair. Fantastic hair. It was... It was beautiful. It was luscious. It was like, oh, it was like a really pale brown, like, oh, like edging vaguely to blonde, but not quite. It was just very beautiful. floppy and silken. Oh, yeah. He could have got lost in it. And in this, he has a very high domed forehead. He must have a receding hairline. And so on the top of this very high domed head, he has a very scraggly mullet. Which is very, very, very short at the top and very, very, very long at the back. It's not subtle in any way, shape or form. No. Not that anything about Steve has ever been subtle in any way, shape or form. It's neither subtle nor flattering. And this wasn't even a 1984 aberration. I think that he had this for most of his life. This seemed to be like the standard issue Steve Marriott hairdo from pretty much the late 70s onwards. And Steve Marriott, of course, when he's introduced, he goes, even in all. Firstly to Bob's team, and they are from the small faces and the humble pie, and now pop quiz, Steve Marriott. Even in all. He is the Dell boy of... Rock, isn't he really? Oh, bless him. After the recording, he was up in the BBC bar. Him and Bob were trying to be cool for P.P. Arnold, but then somebody went through the bar, left the flap up. Steve Marriott fell straight through the bar. (laughs) That's right, that's exactly what happened. Drink up, Bob, we're leaving. And then after that, he went and knocked the wrong blooming chandelier out of the ceiling of the stately home he was in. I can prove he's the Dell boy of rock as well. Cool. You plonk, Ronnie. Oh, my goodness. That reference might need explaining to people who aren't as immersed in the Small Faces as we are. If if you aren't a Small Faces fan, I mean, for a start, for another start, get on that. And for a third start, the bassist in Small Faces, and later on the regular-sized faces, uh, was was a chap named Ronnie Lane, and his nickname... Was, which was more prevalent during the earlier Small Faces time, uh, was Plonk. Plonk, because of his bass playing style. I am not style. telling you 
No. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the official. No. That's the official line. Yeah, that's that's not the reason. You plonk, Ronnie. Yeah. So I've, that's a revelation for you there. I, I'm never going to be the same again after this. <laughs> it was always quite odd for me seeing Steve Marriott just on TV, like just being a person on TV, because he, to me, growing up in the 90s, was quite a mythic character. Because back then, most people from 60s bands were still alive. Amazing as this seems, most 60s bands were still intact. Not, they weren't still together, but they could theoretically reform if any of them spoke to each other again. And there's only only a handful, like Chris Wood from Traffic, BJ Wilson from Procol Harum, Ronnie Bond from Trogs, had died sort of in their 30s and 40s and Steve Marriott died when he was 45 so he was one of the very first between the heyday like you know the, the famous ones like Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and the like who, who died during the heyday and then later on in the 2000s when they started reaching an age where sadly they would, it wouldn't be such a surprise when they would die but there was a few from that middle period where they kind of disappeared in, in middle age I got into the small faces a year after Steve Marriott died. It was from seeing um, Song of a Baker on Sounds of the Sixties. I was like, wow, who are these guys? These guys are good. And so just seeing Steve Marriott on telly, just on a quiz show, that seemed really weird. Yeah. It was a bit disconcerting. Yeah, no, I feel the same. Do you know, weirdly, the Colony Me Pop thing uh, was, was when I first discovered the Small Faces. I mean, I knew that they were always a thing, but the only things that I knew about the Small Faces because, as previously mentioned, massive who's that? Not previously mentioned, giant, lifelong, massive, he is my guy, Keith Moon fan. And the only things I knew about the Small Faces is the drummer from the Small Faces took over from Keith Moon after he died, and the piano player from... The small phases ended up marrying Keith Moon's first wife. So I was That's like, right. "What are all these people doing trying to speak Keith Moon? What's wrong Must with them? What? Uh, well, what? Sure, just leave him alone. Leave him alone." And so I hadn't heard any small phases stuff. I was like, well, "What's the point? I think I'll just listen to the Who and actually listen to the person that these people are trying to beat." But the first, the first song I ever saw was Happy Days Toy Town. Ah, so nice. It was literally. By the time Ronnie had finished singing life. <laughs> that was it. Which is the first word of the Done. song. The first word. Life is just a bowl of old bran. That was it. That you was wake it. up that every it. morning Done. and it's there. sat there doing something do you know what i mean yeah she sat there on telly like just a normal person yeah 
Because he's, he's Steve Marriott. People generally think of the small faces and the who as being fairly similar. They were friendly back. They, they toured together. They toured Australia together. They were both mod bands. They were both from around a similar sort of time. But actually, in terms of the contestants on this show, Steve Marriott is much more like Davy Jones. Yes. They're both... Former child's actors, they're both from... Former Artful Dodgers. They both used to be Artful Dodgers from Oliver. i do anything for you, dear, anything for you, mean everything to me. I know that I'd go anywhere for your smile, anywhere for your smile, everywhere I see. And even like musically, all those songs like Love is Just a Bowl of All Bran is, you can imagine Davy, yeah, they're like those Davy Jones songs. I'm just standing on the corner all day. All those sorts of things. So I think actually, culturally, Steve and Davy have a lot more in common than Steve and John. Certainly temperament wise and energy level. Certainly temperament wise, yes. Although, having said that, Steve Marriott is surprisingly subdued in this. Well, he didn't get any chance to be anything else, well, this is did it. he? No. Let's be fair. It's just like, invite musicians on who have got things to say, and have got something about them, and just take it away from them. Answer these questions and shut up. Yeah, sit down, shut up and answer these questions. It had so much potential. I think that's the thing that annoys me. Yes, it's a shame, isn't it? I used to enjoy watching it because it was, it was quite cosy viewing as well, but it's also frustrating when you know what the potential of it could have been. When I first got into the small faces, I have a, and this is like 30 years ago now, I still have a vivid memory of my mum saying that she remembered Steve being on Pop Quiz and he looked really old. <laughs> what a memory to have, I like, know. considering that your mum was a, a, around the 60s. Mm. Yeah, she would have been around in the 60s, she in the 70s. So, like, she would have remembered the small faces from the time. What a standout memory to have, because he barely said anything in this. Well, I think because the small, because Humble Pie wouldn't have been a household name in the way the small faces were, so probably no. most people wouldn't have seen Steve Marriott since about 1968, when he still had lovely hair and lovely dress sense. And then he suddenly turns up on this show, and that's Steve Marriott, and he's only 38 in this, but he does look quite old. And I think it's just his horrible his horrible hair and horrible dress sense. So I think it would probably be quite memorably shocking for I if you've not so. seen you Steve Marriott like since 1968, when he, when he was about 21 or 22, to be fair, yes. as well. When he's he's approaching 40 and looking... It was a very young band, The Small Faces. Like Kenny Jones was only 15. And... So he, he turns up on this show after 15 years of heavy drug and alcohol use. <laughs> he's like, well, that's Steve Marriott. Also, I think it's no coincidence that Steve Marriott and Pat Arnold are on the same show. Absolutely not. They're essentially best mates, aren't they? They pretty much are. I think one of them was invited on and said, well, I'm only coming on if the other one's coming on. And they said, all right, then. You can't be on the same team. I said, all right, 
they've got a history because she obviously sang on Small Faces records and they they, they played on her records and I think was she in the Blackberries with the Small Faces as well with the with Humble Pie I think she sang with Humble Pie I don't know she was in the Blackberries so yes I mean, it would have been nice if they were on the same team and not sitting across the opposite side of the room because they clearly have a chemistry yes and who doesn't love P.P. Arnold yeah nobody doesn't love her absolutely she is eminently lovable. She does get up and sing at some point. She does, and you know, that really annoyed me because, like, she was just sat there minding her own business and then she was called upon to sing potentially one of the most difficult songs. What was the song again? I didn't Give write it kid, down. Uh, Loving You. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah, R- Minnie Ripperton, that's right. I mean, not only is it a really difficult song to sing, but clearly, 100%, not in her vocal range because she's not, she's not a soprano. So... She sang it in a key that was right for her, and she absolutely nailed it, and she sounded amazing. And flipping Mike Reed goes, well, I was I was going to take a point off for you being overdramatic. Like, what? Shut <laughs> up! Like... Shut up! Sit down and behave yourself, you silly little man. It's an absolutely amazing Ugh. performance she does. And he's like, huh. Steve Merritt says, up you get, girl. <laughs> up you get, girl. Everyone should have like just been applauding and be absolutely gobsmacked, but of course Mike Reed has to make some comment. PP, you're last. No one else can make me feel the colours that you bring. Stay with me while we grow old and we will live each day in springtime. Uh, Minnie Ripperton. Too easy. Ah. <laughs> and? The song? Yeah. Loving You. Loving You, two points. Yeah. <laughs> we will get an extra point if PP Arnold can give us her rendition of Loving You. Yes. Down the thing. chorus. Up you get, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Loving you Where? has made my life so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And everything that you do. I nearly took one off for overdoing it, but one extra point for that. Paul Jones. Did you know he was named after Brian Jones? His name is Paul Pond, I think. Yes. Uh, but he, w- he was friends with Brian Jones, so named himself after Brian Jones. He was friends with Brian Jones. That's odd, because Brian Jones was a thoroughly unpleasant man by all accounts. But also, wouldn't you find it creepy if like, one of your friends named themselves after you? If you ever decide to name yourself Adam Wainwright, you can forget it. <laughs> Wouldn't that be weird? <laughs> when I was little, I thought Holly Johnson and Griff Reese Jones were the same person. So. <laughs> on Jack and Ori, Griff Reese Jones came on and did the Church Mice books, which I have to say, the Church Mice books are brilliant. Have you ever read the Church Mice books? I don't think so. They're brilliant, and I recommend them to anyone. They're these picture books with these little stories about these mice who live in a church and they have a cat who is their friend and they have these little adventures. But you would love it because they are some of the most sarcastic books I have ever read. These mice have a really sarcastic sense of humour. So it looks very classic. It looks like it should be really twee, these church mice having adventures. But it's so sarcastic. It was with Griff Reese jones That's one of the more perfect couplings between book book and reader but i thought oh it's it's the guy from frankie goes to hollywood that's nice they've got him on the telly i didn't know what, what he spoke like i didn't know he was a scouser 
I was I was a simple lad. I know. You still are. Poor old Steve Marriott is hoist by his own petard. His pride comes before a fall, so he gets a clip. All the all the um rounds in this episode are the same rounds as the first episode, but in a different order, which is a bit disconcerting. So it starts off with the individual round, which came much later in the show last time. And mm. Steve has to identify three singers three performers who do the songs six three four five seven eight nine which is an old i think it's motown and he says w- one was wilson pickett obviously right this individual round they're conferring like mad over here any ideas Steve? uh well one was wilson pickett obviously uh which one was obviously the wilson set pickett? Uh, was um the third one so um <laughs> well, it was it was it was um Percy Sledge, I thought, was the first one. I'm not sure. It's a good guess. It wasn't actually Percy himself, but it's a good guess. Sister Sledge. No Sledge. <laughs> Mr. Sledge. Mr. Sledge. Uncle uh, Sledge. I'm going to have to tell you. It weren't Gino Washington, was it? You're right. <laughs> it wasn't right, Gino Washington. It <laughs> and it wasn't Wilson Pickett either. It was Eddie Floyd, number one. Two was Rykuda. And three was Otis Redding. I heard Holly. <laughs> Holly was trying to mouth out his reading out. Well, I can't help it. No points there. He fails to get any of those. Steve Marriott, who's supposed to be the soul music expert, doesn't get a single one right. And Bob Geldof is so angry, he shoves Steve Marriott for getting it wrong, which I think is yes. quite fun. There's just, there, 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 there are times when things might happen between, there are, Things might happen between Bob Geldof and Steve Marriott that definitely would not happen between John Entwistle and Davy Jones. They <laughs> they were planning on a big night out to have a great old time and to cause some chaos. I feel like Bob Geldof and Steve Marriott were planning on having a fight in the car park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then go home with their arms around each other's shoulders. Yeah, giggling. Although Bob Geldof would have to crouch. I think this show... This episode has been deliberately set up to haunt Steve Marriott. So first of all, it's got P.P. Arnold on the other team. And then you've got Runaway, which he covered. And then later on, Peter Frampton, his old bandmate, turns up in a clip. Yes. And then we get Rod Stewart, who replaced him in The Small Faces. So it's like they're just poking him. And also, Paul Jones was uh, a solo act who toured... Because after he'd left Manfred Mann, he, he toured as a solo act with the Small Faces and the Who in Australia in that ill-fated oh, he was, he tour was where they all, oh. they all got kicked out of Australia. Never allowed back. Pete Townsend gave Steve Merritt a pink guitar for his birthday and then promptly borrowed it and smashed it up on stage. Oh, Pete. There's some good clips, though. We get to see, yeah, we get to see Peter Frampton, Cockney Rebel. We do. We get to see John Lennon. John Lennon. John Lennon, of course, doing Slipping and Sliding. Yes, Annie was singing as well. David Bowie doing Queen Bitch. Uh, Wizards, who look... Wizard look like an ELO fever dream. Yes, that's a very good description of them. They're like ELO, but they've gone septic. <laughs> oh, heck. I, I think there's probably not a huge amount more to say about this episode without going through all the different rounds. But I have one question for you. Yes. Can you Tina Turner? I... I can Tina Turner. Oh, Adam Stewart Leslie. (laughs) I quit. That's it. 
That's it. This is the last episode. No, that's it. It's been it's been a great fifteen years of friendship ish. <laughs> but no, <laughs> this is a pun too far. <laughs> I rather enjoyed it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's what makes it so painful. I'm like the cat who got the cream. I can feel your grin from here. Very proud of that one. I can tell. I can tell. So we we play out the episode with a clip of uh, Ike and Tina Turner. I forget which mm-hmm. uh, song they were doing because I was so distracted looking at the middle Iquette. Because we are told the middle Iquette is P.P. Arnold herself because she was once an Iquette. She was an Iquette. And she's all giggly and embarrassed when she's looking at the screen. And it's just the most, it's just the cutest, most adorable, lovely thing. I love her. You love her. Steve loves her. He does. Who else matters? And we've, we barely mentioned Tom Robinson again due to the format of the show. He's just there. He's just sitting there. He's just sat there. The man can talk. He's a radio DJ these days. It's not like he can't talk. It's just like... there's Nobody spoke to him. There's no room for six people <laughs> in the format. There's really not. You can't, you can't split the time equally between all of those people. That was me thinking we wouldn't have anything to say at all. I know, it's just a quiz show, but no, we've got plenty to say, it turns out. We always do. Hardly any Beatles quotes this time, either. No, because we're too busy fangirling about the monkeys and the who and the small faces. Well, they are our boys. It's probably not worth asking you whether you would hunt it out and regularly watch it on YouTube. I've watched a couple of others, actually. Absolutely wouldn't. I, I've watched a few on YouTube, and it's quite entertaining just because of who's on it. Yeah. It's a time capsule. And seeing a lot of these people, it's the only opportunity to see them in that context. Seeing Steve Marriott on a quiz show is a bit like that clip of John Lennon in the mid-70s presenting an award at an award ceremony. What are you doing there? He's mythical. Like, what are you doing in this light entertainment show? You're not supposed to be there. This is making my brain go weird. Yeah. This is John Lennon reading the cue cards, presenting an award on a cheesy showbiz award ceremony. This is very surreal. Hello, I'm John. (laughs) I used to play with my partner, Paul. I'm, uh, I'm Paul. I used to play with my partner, Art. I'm Andy. I used to play with my partner, Claudine. Uh, this partner of yours, did you two do anything creative? In creative, uh, creative, Michael? Well, I guess you could say we came up with three hits. Oh, that's very good. Yeah. Oh, Art and I did that in one day. Oh, you did? Uh, well, we were a little slow. Uh, you know, the music that you fellows wrote, though, uh, really did influence my life. It influenced it quite a bit. As a matter of fact, it helped uh, tell the story of me and my partner. Ah, any songs in particular, Andy? <laughs> well, let's see. It started off, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and it finished with Bridge Over Troubled Water. True. <laughs> touching, touching. Shall Thank we you. get on with it? Let's do it. Yes, okay. My God. So this is what Dawn does, is it? Mm. For, uh, for Record of the Year, Grammys, to Artist and Producer, the nominees are... That is, yeah. 
is very surreal. And at one point, Art Garfunkel also joins them on stage, and Paul Simon says, I thought I told you to wait in the car. <laughs> I feel like that's probably what Paul Simon says to Art Garfunkel <laughs> yeah, when, yes, when they go I'm on not, stage, generally. I'm not sure it was a joke, even. <laughs> <laughs> Adam. Thank you very, very much for introducing me to Pop Quiz. And actually, you know, now I know what the rules should be of the game. It's been <laughs> it's been a mystery for so many years. Uh, and thank you to everybody for listening in. It's been a joy to have you with us as ever. And next time, it's my go again. I know already it feels like this is all I do. Take charge. I don't like it. I'm a bit like Giant Missile in that. I don't like being the captain. Um, in many respects you're like Janine <laughs> in many respects I've got a skeleton suit in my cupboard and everything next time it's my go and I'm going to give you a little hint of what we're going to be watching and all I'm going to tell you is that it's time to put on maple so if you would like to get in touch with us you're more than welcome to our twitter account is at retro underscore tube and you're more than welcome to get in touch with us there. Or if you would prefer to email us, 280 characters aren't enough for you. Our email address is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com. And we're always happy to hear from you. And we're dead good at getting back to you as well. So, yeah, give it a whirl. And I think that is potentially the only things that I need to tell you. Adam, would you like to have the last word? The last word is whatever is written on the note that John Entwistle hands to Davy Jones. Oh my goodness. I know. The mind boggles. This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.